It's time for Nordic on Tap. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folk tales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. In this podcast, you'll meet a talented artist that I had the fortune to meet a couple years ago. The more I saw of her work and learned about her process, the more certain I was that you had to hear her in an interview. It all started when uh, my son Carl brought me a print he had bought at a farmer's market where this artist was apparently selling her work. It was a recipe of sorts, arranged in a circle, kind of like a clock, were these eight smaller drawings that were also circular. And in each small circle, it was a step in the lefts of making recipe, from dividing up the dough in the beginning to cooking and finally cutting the lefts into quarters. So this really got me excited. I thought, I I said to him, who made this? And he said, just this lady at the market. I said, I love it because... It's a Scandinavian-American subject matter, one. Two, it teaches how to do something, which I think is cool. And three, it's put together in a really ingenious way. So I soon discovered that this lady not only had made a Lefse recipe illustration, but also one on how to make krumkaka cookies and kransakaka, or a wreath cake. Let me digress a moment so you understand why I appreciate these illustrations. I took uh, some time off my teaching career, went back to school to learn design, photography, and art, learning how to do botanical illustration or make instructions and, and a diagram for a procedure. These things were really fascinating for me. And in art school, I came to appreciate this challenge of simplifying illustrations. It takes a lot of thinking and planning, and that kind of thing really speaks to the teacher in me. Now, this artist I'm talking about creates things not only that appeal to me because of their simplicity, but also to my love of laying everything out in an orderly fashion. And even better, Much of her work reflects the Pacific Northwest, where I live. She's got collections of apples and berries and fairies and lighthouses and profiles of mountain ranges and maps. If there ever was a need for careful planning and artistry, it's making a map and choosing what to include and what not to include. So, enough of this. I finally was able to interview this artist on Zoom. Here she is. My name is Elizabeth Person, and I'm an illustrator, and I specialize in informational art. So maps are my specialty, but any kind of information and art combination is is fine by me, and I enjoy. And I use ink and watercolor to do my work, and I spend a lot of time on my pieces. They're pretty detailed. I do a lot of research. And then, um, surprisingly, the painting is the quickest part, the watercolor, which is the last step that I do. And then um, I sell prints of my work. I sell originals at shows. I... Wholesale, I'm at a lot of stores around the Puget Sound area. And then um, I do commission work, um, particularly for commercial purposes. 
So, um, and I've also uh, gotten to illustrate a book. So those are some of my different areas that I've gone into. And um, yes, thank you, yeah, to live on an island. I got to illustrate that a few years ago, a children's book uh, set in the San Juan Islands here in the Northwest. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, well, well great. So I know you, you, in one of your interviews or videos, you talked about you were able to let go of your day job <laughs> and finally become an artist full-time. What did you do before? Yeah, I was a graphic designer. I went to school, I went to college and studied illustration at a liberal arts school, not an art school, with the hopes of getting into publishing or maybe being an artist. I wasn't quite sure. And then I fell into graphic design and it ended up being a really good fit. And that was right after college. And I was thankful to find a job right away. And I did that for about, let's see, about 10 years. And I'm really thankful for that time because it gave me a lot of professional experience. I worked for small businesses, so I got to observe the life cycles of small businesses and uh, some of the politics and the logistics and how people wear different hats. And then I think that really prepared me well for launching my own business, which I did. I, I overlapped. I, I worked full time while I also worked on my business on the side. And then almost five years ago, I was able to leave that um, my day job as a designer and do art full time as I was gradually replacing my income yeah. with uh, freelance art. I know you use Adobe Illustrator, for example, right? Quite yes. intensely. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's... I do a lot of my um, planning and a lot of my editing in uh, digital programs, but my the bulk of my work is traditionally done. But having a design background is so helpful because I can format different prints. I do my own cards. I can do my own marketing materials, you know, design my own website halfway and with the help of a, a template. And just having some of those foundational design skills has been a really nice match with illustration. And I was quite pleased with um, To Live on an Island. It's a fictional story of a day in the life of a boy, but there's a nonfiction narrative sidebar in every page spread. And that was a publisher decision, but I was so pleased because it's kind of in line with things that I really enjoyed as a kid. Yeah, ask it, why, why don't we jump to that just for a sec? So I, I noticed that too, and it was interesting because you have two, there's two real different voices there. We have one's, you know, for young kids, and then the inset are much more a, kind of a adult for the adult reader, or they're really right. great. The author wrote those, uh, Emma Bland Smith, and she's a, a librarian. So she comes at, <laughs> I think, children's books from a very historical and factual perspective. And I thought it was a really nice blend of facts about the San Juan Islands and some of the pleasures and difficulties of life there. And then having a narrative, which is more traditional for kids' books and helps them enter into the world. Yes. Place. Yes. Yeah, it really worked. And it allowed you to do some little vignettes of like the the back end of the ferry or stuff like that, which I think was neatly neat. Exactly. And I think those those little vignettes are my favorite part to illustrate, honestly, <laughs> the little factoids. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. And I love the picture of, and it just reminds me of when I've flown over Puget Sound, the shot down looking at the seaplane and, and the way the you know, background is laid out. And it reminded me of your maps, except this was a yeah. oblique angle, which is a challenge. Yes, that was one of my favorite spreads was uh, showing my, the perspective is kind of a bird almost above an airplane who's flying over the island. So it's a um, like a three quarters landscape, I guess you could say, or partial aerial view. And I really enjoyed doing that. And, and you got like a senior citizen flying it, which I really like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, grandma's flying Grandma, to see her grandkids yeah. on the island. Um, let's talk about your Nordic connection, Scandinavian connection. 
Yeah. So I've, I've got a few pieces of artwork that anytime someone comments on, I'm like, ah, I think they're Scandinavian if they recognize it. And I've got, I've illustrated a recipe of lefse, which is something my family's made every, you know, around the holidays every year. And then I've since added to it and done a krumkaka and kransakaka recipes as well. And then I've also done, I've illustrated all of the Nordic countries. Yes. And, um, but my very first piece was lefse, and that was just a way, it just, I got it in my head one year. I'd really like to illustrate the process of making this really complicated uh, bread, because it is quite a process and usually involves multiple people. And, um, it, oh, it's been so fun to connect with people over that piece, because I did not realize how many families make lefse every year in the United States, in Washington specifically. I've got Scandinavian heritage on both my mother and father's sides, oh. and I'm mostly Norwegian, and my last name is, uh, which we just say person, but it's, right. you know, it was Persson, it was Swedish, and had two S's, and um, oh, my great, let's see, my, I think I'm third generation on one side and fourth generation on the other from um, immigrants from Scandinavia. That's great. Have you ever, ever had a chance to go back that way, travel there? Yes, I got to go to Norway a few years ago and did a little road trip and with some friends. It was really lovely and I, I would love to go back. And I've um, also been to Denmark and Iceland, but still need to make it to Finland. And oh, and I, I went to Sweden as well. So I, I guess great. I've dabbled, <laughs> but I'd love to spend more time there. And man, being in Norway was really a pleasure. Why don't you tell me a little bit about why you're in Everett, why you chose to settle in Everett, uh, about the scene or whatever, and maybe that can segue into sketchy Everett. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I've lived in Everett for about 11 years now, and I, I grew up in Snohomish County. I'm from this area, um, born on the West Coast, and I consider Washington my home. And I I lived, I've lived in Snohomish and then I just found myself driving to Everett every night to visit friends and I had a community here. And so eventually I, I uh, just thought, you know, I want to be where I'm going every day. I want to live there. And um, man, that was a good decision. I've been delighted by how walkable Everett is, how well designed this old city is. It's, it's not big. We're about 110,000 population, but it's super well designed and it's easy to run into people. And in fact, it's hard to not run into people that I know all the time. And I really enjoy that part of living here. And uh, there's a great uh, arts community. There's a lot of support in the local government for the arts. And I've gotten to be involved in that. And there's um, a lot of uh, music happening here. The Everett Music Initiative is a really cool um, program that's brought a lot of live shows here. And um, man, I, I just really love living here. And also you can see the Cascades and the Olympics from pretty much anywhere in the city, which is pretty awesome. Yes. Yeah. Thankfully, I can now identify the the mountains east of Everett with that's another thing on my wall. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. The mountain ranges from Everett perspective. Yeah. Tell me about how you got started doing sketching of 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 Everett. Yeah. So I realized I I um as a graphic designer I really wanted to try to pursue doing more art. So it started with carrying a sketchbook around and and um. It's free. It's pretty easy. There's free models everywhere if you just sit somewhere and draw people at an event. So I started drawing, um, you know, carrying my sketchbook around when I moved to Everett. And I used to go to the park a lot and draw the sunset a lot. And one of my friends noticed that and he started, he co-founded the Live in Everett blog and community. And so it was a just a fledgling website. And he asked if I would contribute local sketches to it. And that was a perfect project for me to really sink my teeth into. And it got me out and um, spending a little more time on my sketches. So I started doing sketches every other week, which I can't believe because wow. now I, I don't do nearly that pace. But every other week I draw something. And it was 
really fun for me and people really enjoyed, I got great feedback from it. And then I started selling prints of my drawings and those continue to sell well. And people um, love to celebrate where they live. And it's fun to, I get particular satisfaction out of some of the scenes I've drawn that are quite humble or like I went to a shoe repair store and that's a nice one. If I could draw him and (laughs) yeah. And, and and that sketch has really resonated with a lot of people and I wouldn't have expected that. So yeah, um, it's a really fun project and it's still going, but I contribute a lot less often. I just do it. I'd say about once a quarter, I do a drawing. Um, and then I've gotten some cool opportunities through that. Like I got a press pass to go watch Serena Williams play when the U S open was in Everett two years ago. And I got to hear it be in the press room when they interviewed her afterwards. And that was really cool. And, um, my husband and I collaborated and did a special sketchy Everett all about that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I remember seeing, uh, an animation of her hitting a, a shot serving. Yes. I, yeah. I got like, inspired to make a yeah. sketchy gif. It was gif. really cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's neat. Yeah, that's on my website. Yeah, so what I like especially, so I, I lived in Federal Way for a long time, and uh, I noticed that Tacoma suffered this this you know uh, reputation as Tacoma aroma because of the smells yes. and stuff. And so I, I grew up in Seattle and always thought Tacoma is just you know kind of a sleepy burb. And I'll admit I thought the same about Everett even more sleepy and (laughs) who cares and what's up there's nothing up there and you and and other artists in other towns have really brought it alive and celebrated living in Everett it seems to me yeah I love hearing that I I totally get that and there's a reputation around Everett like Tacoma and it's been really fun to actually live here and just love it Um, my husband actually moved here from Seattle uh, several years ago and he just can't believe how much he likes Everett because he also had similar uh, ideas about it before. Yeah, there's tons of history there. I mean, incredible. Yeah. I, very I, old. yeah, very old. Yeah. Actually, when they were building the Transcontinental Railroad, ah. they weren't sure if they were going to end in Everett or Seattle. Like it was, it was not it was decided. So everyone thought Everett was going to get huge, and you know they ended up taking it to Seattle. But there are still marks of those decisions and um you know the railroad cars and the mines in this area oh that's interesting are you familiar with uh the fellow in this he's retired i think seattle sketcher gabriel yeah 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 Yeah. i've gotten to meet him he's wonderful and i i've really appreciated his work yeah it's so funny you know sketching it's kind of like handwriting you know people have different handwriting for when they're you know, taking notes versus writing a letter. And I feel like my drawing style varies based on the situation quite a bit. So it's been fun to do sketchy Everett because to me, that's loose work compared to my tighter maps and exacting work. And when I sketch, I can have more creative freedom. So, so why don't we segue to that? Tell me about map making in particular. You know, what goes in it? I know that you do a lot of backgrounding or research first, right? Yeah. You know, I choose an area that I want to map and my process is to research that and try to find a lot of different maps. You know, I don't copy from one map. I find a lot of different reference. And one challenging aspect is um, uh, the curvature of the earth. Like every map is can be a little bit different based on what projection they've used. So I need to find maps that do line up somewhat. So, for example, I did a map of Alaska and it was very tricky to find reference that lined up that I could use multiple sources because Alaska is so big. It covers so much curvature of the earth that that's handled differently. And so that's one first challenge I have is like flattening these 3D things into a 2D shape. 
And then um, once I had my reference material, I actually just grid out my watercolor paper and grid my reference um, on my computer. And I use a one inch grid usually and draw freehand within that to do a map because I want the overall shape to be, I just, it just needs to be right. You know, I don't want to guess yeah, around right. the shape. Yeah. So I, I work in um, watercolor sheets that are usually about 18 by 24 inches. Sometimes I work a lot larger, but I try to work as big as I can because I want to be able to reproduce right. my work really largely. So for example, my mountain ranges, I've worked as large as 40 inches by 18 inches. So very long and skinny so that I could reproduce something up to seven feet big. And that can get challenging with watercolor and ink pens because they, you know, they don't, I have to work fast. I'll put it that way when I paint because I'm covering a large area. Right. So back to the map process, I'll spend a lot of time penciling in an illustration. Then I do all the labeling. I pencil it all in and I'm getting pretty good at writing in a straight line without a ruler, but I do like to write everything to reduce spelling errors and, you know, mistakes like that. And then I'll identify landmarks, cities, geography, and then I try to indicate topography through color. So that's the last step. And I try to make the maps as meaningful as I can by adding layers of information. But overall, my maps are considered a low information map because, you know, if you compare them to a roadmap, there's so much more information on a roadmap. Right. So so my maps aren't for navigation necessarily. They're more for reference or for um, to put on a wall and educate. You're right. People don't usually put roadmaps on the wall. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They put art on the wall. Yeah, exactly. And then um, my last step is to do the water. I ink it with a waterproof ink. And then I do the watercolor and I find watercolor very challenging. It's, it's got a mind of its own and it's messy, but it, um, you know, watercolor is created from minerals from the earth and it's a very earthy uh, look and it blends beautifully. And I just love how it looks in the end. So I've managed to corral it as much as I can. And again, it has a mind of its own, but I, I try to make it do what I want it to do. And Sometimes I'm surprised and quite pleased with the results, even if they weren't something I planned for. I guess you like uh, Daniel Smith paints and uh, Graham paints. Yeah, I'm Graham. So so instead of squeezing from a ton of tubes, did you generally work from a a palette with wells that are pre-filled? Yep, I use a palette with wells. I probably have about maybe about 25 colors I use and, and a mix from there. And one thing about every um, art medium has advantages and disadvantages. And one advantage of watercolor is that it is relatively inexpensive. You know, there's a, the, you know, a, two, a tiny tube of paint can cost $25, but I, that tube of paint might last me like seven years. So overall, my material cost is quite low when I make art. It's much more the time involved that is the, the heavy cost. The longer I do it, the more I try to spend a little more money on my supplies because good supplies will last so long and it makes such a difference. So like I upgraded my brushes a few years ago from like $25 brushes to $75 brushes. And I use one brush all year. It's incredible. And it lasts me the whole year for everything I do. Is that the Kalinske? Yes. Kalinske. <laughs> Those <laughs> are amazing. Actually, they're amazing. Yes. And I've um, actually just started using a synthetic blend that's part hair, part right. synthetic, that's even cheaper, but it's from England. So it costs a bit of money to, to purchase it. It's from Rose, Rosemary Brush Company and okay. um, been playing around with those. Probably saves on weasels, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And let's see your pens. Uh, you like Lamy, uh, Lamy pens? Or however yes. you pronounce that. <laughs> yes, I think Lamy, but I'm not Lamy. sure. They're made in, in Germany and they're about a $40 refillable fountain pen. 
So I um, buy a waterproof ink called, um, let's see. Diatramentus. Yes, yes, <laughs> thank you. I, I bought them all my stuff based on on what I saw oh, on your website. I'm honored. I got thank my two you. two safari pens here, Lamy safaris. <laughs> That's awesome. They I used to use like Microns. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I think actually the Pit pens are by um, yeah. And, and uh, let's see, Faber Castell, and they're wonderful. But the Lamy's last they don't they last so long because the watercolor paper is rough and it wears down a felt tip yeah so as you probably experimented with it just lasts a lot longer to use a metal fountain pen lovely watercolor paper and they I usually get a hot press cold press blend so one side is smooth and one side is a little rougher and it's got this gorgeous deckle edge because it's handmade and it's just a really fun paper to work on so I usually uh, order a whole bunch of it at a time and that lasts me about six months and and if I need to fill in the gaps I'll go to an art store and you know buy Strathmore or something more um, common but I I don't mind using that at all but the twin rocker is just a, a very lovely paper I liked just that you have on your website a series of shots that show you building the Camino Island map. And yeah, that's, I think that's my really blog. cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's in your blog. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, if anyone wants to call them, how to make a map or the anatomy of map making. And that shows, yeah, every step in the way I show the process. Um, and I use the example of the Camino map exactly. And I made a little gif at the end to show how it kind of comes together. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, a little gif. That's cool. Yeah. So tell me about the brain that's behind wanting to paint collections of things. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, that's funny. Well, you know, I, I started out illustrating just whatever struck my fancy. And, you know, like I mentioned, the left set illustration, I also have a bluegrass illustration where I was listening to a lot of bluegrass. Yes. And wasn't sure what instruments were making all those sounds. So it, for me, it started out as a way to educate myself on something hmm. to, to draw it out. And so as I've gotten, my company's gotten bigger and um, I've tried to fill out some of those collections. So I had like a chart of different kinds of apples and Mm -hmm. I've since added kinds of berries and kinds of citrus. So it doesn't seem quite as random, you know, some of the things that I've done and there are endless things to, you know, map and chart. So I feel like I'll I'll never run out of material. So it's just a matter of time. I always feel like I have far more ideas than I have time to map things out and and then I try to leave a little space for for uh, whimsy in in my schedule. So whatever I feel like drawing, not right. just what you know what's next on my to do list. So I've got some botanical drawings, and right. um, you know, do the sketchy ever. It's not just maps. The way I asked the question sounded a little weird about your brain. I, I am analytical. I especially appreciate collections and arrangements yeah. of things. I'm an analytical person as well, and I I've realized like I really love art. I always have. But my art that I create is very literal. Like I don't do abstract work. It's very difficult for me to make abstract work. And even though I appreciate it, and I, I love a lot of artists who make that kind of work, but I've just embraced the fact that my brain won't let me do that. <laughs> At least not right now at this stage of life. And and I'm trying to dive into this um, marriage of, of um, information and art, which may feel contradictory to some people are at first glance, but I mean, artists are very, like artists are engineers. And I also think that a lot of people who aren't in the arts are extremely creative. I think actually, I think everyone has creativity. It just looks different. So I like that. I like that my work can surprise people sometimes because it is a little, um, uh, my my friend calls it smart art or I call it nerdy, you know, like got the, the, a blend of things going on. 
there's a fellow who you never heard, uh, no one's heard of him because he's not, you can't look him up very well. His name is Mark Nolan, and his name is in the corner of all the graphics, uh, like when Bertha the Tunneler, Tunneler Machine, he draw out the entire thing and, and point to the various parts. Right. But I just, I love those infographics. I mean, it's really good. The spacing and arrangement, it's good stuff. I th- you know, and I think that brings up a great point. I think a lot of people don't realize you open a science textbook and it's full of art. Mm-hmm. It's full of artists who are who have created renderings to help people understand things. Right. And there's a lot of, um, you know, medical illustration and there's there's a lot of um, technical drawings, diagrams, like all the Ikea manuals and how to put things together. <laughs> like those are drawings because they're more clear than a photo. And they're international. They don't necessarily, they may have instructions, but you don't always need them. It's not limited by language right. when they're you've got a drawing. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I'll have people come up to me, you know, like in years later and be like, oh, I saw your work at this tiny little bar in Shoreline and it, you know, it was the Ridgecrest pub. And that was like years ago. And I just can't believe that people remember it or they're like, I was thinking about those mountains that I saw that you illustrated. And um, I even did an art residency at Holden Village in um, yes. up Lake Land, which we can get to because there's a lot of Scandinavian ties there. But I have so many people who said, I saw your work at Holden Village. And I just am amazed because it takes about half a day to get there. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah. So people get around Washington. I have a picture my dad took when he was you know, in his 20s and he and his buddies went hiking through the wilderness from, from Holden through, I guess, the Railroad Creek drainage. And um, he's on the back of a truck. And so (laughs) I thought, I know what I need to identify that truck. (laughs) I need your picture of the trucks of Holden, right? That's wonderful. Yes, because no roads connect uh, northern Lake Chelan. So it's any vehicles that are there at the village are permanent. They don't go anywhere because they were barged in through the lake. And let's see, you've done uh, something about their water system, right? Yes, that was actually uh, one of the more complex infographics I'd done, and I really loved that project. So Holden Village is an old mine town from the 30s that was basically, I guess you could say abandoned and um, sold to a the Lutheran church or parachurch for like, I don't know, $5 or something nominal, um, just so they would take it over. And then um, an organization has now turned this into a retreat center uh, run by by a Lutheran organization. And it's just a love, anyone is welcome to come. It's a lovely place. There's hiking, like amazing hiking um, activities. There's a chapel, there's a food hall. Like it's wonderful to go for a week. It's a great place for kids. And they also get more snow than pretty much anywhere in Washington. Mm -hmm. So it is quite gorgeous. Um, It's almost, it's Bavarian style, like A-frames. And um, I guess you could say a little bit like Leavenworth. Leavenworth, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's wonderful. So I got to do a six-week residency there in 2015, where I ended up focusing all my time on the village and documenting what's there, because it's such a unique place. Why don't we reference your books uh, or books you've been involved in? So one, To Live on an Island. Um, yeah. And then there's a couple, few others, right, that you've done something for. Yeah, I got to fully illustrate To Live on an Island, which is a children's book. And then I've contributed maps to two other books and then did some spot illustrations for a third. I got to do a map for a, a middle reader book huh. called um, A Whale in the Wild. 
that was um, published by Green Willow Books in New York. And that was a really fun. I did a map of the Salish Sea from a whale's perspective. It was it was really fun. So I love your website. It's very welcoming, but accessible. And it tells a lot about you. You show a lot about how you do things. And it brings that richness to it. When you buy a piece of your article, I know a little bit about that. And I think that's really it certainly sells me. Good. Well, I've really put a lot into my website. I launched it last year to have my my own independent shop where I can sell my work and have a portfolio. Uh-huh. It's elizabethperson.com. Right. And I built it through Shopify and I'm really working on the educational components. So I'm building out my blog and trying to give people more information on my process and materials and how I run my business as well. Because there are so many um, aspiring artists and business owners who have a lot of questions and need advice. So I'm really working on providing more of that information because I know it's quite daunting <laughs> when you're first starting out. So that's neat. So you are definitely have at least some focus on giving a hand up to younger artists or up and coming artists. Yeah, I think it's just part of the nature of being an artist is, you know, I'm, I'm always asking questions of other artists who are more experienced. And that was a big help to me, especially when I first started. And I definitely feel like obliged and excited to help others as well. I think for me, the biggest thing is I need to make sure I enjoy my work to make it sustainable. And sometimes I don't, sometimes I do work because I, I need to pay the bills or because I got into a project, not realizing the scope or So I'm not saying I love everything I do, but that's the goal. And um, I think that sometimes I do certain, like I'll give some examples, like to make sure I enjoy my work. Sometimes that's why I I give myself free time to make whatever I want because I need to clear my brain, you know, or sometimes I do work that I don't show anyone. Like I keep a a watercolor journal and I sketch on site and sometimes I sell those sketches you know, if I like put a photo on Instagram and someone's like, Hey, I want to buy the hat. I'm like, sweet. But sometimes I don't even show a photo because it's not for them. It's no, it's for no one. It was just for me to practice or I did it for myself. So that's important to keep me focused on creating work and loving what I do. So how do you get yourself to where you can let go of your originals? I mean, is (laughs) (laughs) yeah. A lot of people ask me that it, it hasn't, you know, I just feel like I'd rather someone who loved this piece, have it in their home than it be in my drawer in my house. And there's only, I I think there's only like a few pieces I've sold that I'm like, man, I really liked that piece, but I make copies. I I scan all my work and I can make prints. And, um, you know, I, I am an artist, but I'm specifically an illustrator, which is a commercial artist. I don't consider myself a fine artist. So I'm not trying to sell originals to make my income. I'm selling prints. And that's actually really important to me because I want my work to be accessible. I want it to be affordable and I want it to be everywhere. (laughs) Like I, I don't want exclusivity to necessarily be a big part of my work like a fine artist might. And so I see. uh, So we can see you on your website and buy stuff through there. I also have an Etsy shop. Um, I, which has been a, a great Wait, I've been on there since about 2012 and I do prefer that people follow me over to my website if they're up for it, but I do appreciate that Etsy empowers a lot of artisans and I get a lot of business from people who aren't from the Northwest find me through Etsy. Yes. Um, so yeah. where could we see you if we want to see you in person, uh, you know, or a festival or a fair or anything that's, and, and of course we're coming out, hopefully coming out yeah. of the pandemic, um, <laughs> Uh, I think you have something scheduled for August, a festival. Yes. But yeah. Um, in fact, let me 
Um, I've actually, so right now is the time that I'm getting notifications. My first event will be May 7th. I'll be at Edmond Springfest, which is a urban craft uprising event. And that will be in uh, downtown Edmonds. It's a one day event. Then in June, I'll be at Sorticulture, which is a garden art festival in Everett, downtown Everett, fun. June 10th through 12th. Yep. That's a really fun show. And they've moved it to the heart of downtown. So it's really walkable and ADA accessible. And then in August, I will be at Anacortes Arts Festival, which is a really huge art festival. And if you haven't been, it's quite an experience. There's about eight blocks of artists. Wow. They have demo stations. They've got like people will be doing oil paintings of, you know, the scenes around them. It's very educational. And that is an awesome summer festival. And then I haven't heard yet, but I hope to get into Fresh Paint, which is a festival in Everett at the end of August. So we can see you. We can go to your website. We can shop on your Etsy site. I could just share one project that I'm working on right now that's kind of exciting is, um, you know, back when I was thinking about a business and my goals, I wrote down my dream list of clients and I got one of them. I can't believe it. And I'm I'm working on maps for the national park system. Or, oh um, <laughs> They're redoing the San Juan um, Historic National Park Visitor Center, which is um, in the south end of San Juan Island. So I'm doing some map panels for their interpretive center. And it's been quite a big process and I'm, I'm thrilled to be working on them and getting to see how it works when like the behind the scenes government processes, because when they build these signs and these panels and these buildings, they're thinking like, will this last for 25 years? Will this last for 50 years? And, you know, I work in watercolor, so, you know, like my, I don't think as long-term like that. And it's been really eye-opening to see their, again, see their processes. And I've gotten to observe them working with other artists like sculptors and what they need and, you know, for the art to last a long time. Right. So yours, some of your work would be part of exhibit signage. I get to do some of the maps that'll be on the interpretive panels mm -hmm. and they're all, um, most of them will be contemporary maps showing the park and the, the system in the island and the context of the San Juan Islands and the Salish Sea. And then one will be a historic map showing all the different tribes in the area that use the San Juan Islands. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah, so that should be, um, I think they're going to do a lot of the installation this summer, and I should be wrapping up the project in a few months. A good reason to go go check it out again, yeah. Yeah. And in American camp, right? No, no British camp. <laughs> yeah, there's English camp and American yeah, camp that's yeah, also yeah, run yeah. by this park. And right. that is quite a history. If you if you aren't familiar with the pig wars and the, the big fight over who owned the islands, Canada or the U.S. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Quite a lady. I think it's probably obvious that I'm a big fan. Her website, as she mentioned, is elizabethpearson.com, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H, standard spelling for Elizabeth Pearson, P-E-R-S-O-N.com. You can see her work, see what tools she uses, the processes she employs. You can buy things off of the site. You can buy things off of her Etsy site. And in the North Puget Sound area, you may just find her at an art festival. Now, I couldn't include everything that we talked about in the interview. So I've made a link to the outtakes from the rest of the interview, which you can play off of the page for the Elizabeth Pearson podcast. We have time for a song, this one from the Hardington CD that I introduced in the Hardanger Fiddle podcast. 
This is that talented quartet playing string instruments made by Luthier Lindberg. It has David Loberg-Code on fiddle, Tova Leira Hansen on viola, Karen Loberg-Code on a standard violin, and Linda Kaspersen Andresen. Previously I said this wrong, it's not Anderson, it's Andresen. She's on cello. We're going to hear the Vossavalsen, a tune from the area of Voss within the Valdres district in Norway, and of course, it's a waltz, Vossavalsen. If you enjoy this kind of music as I do, well, first you can order this CD by emailing Karin at uh, Karin at CodeStudioStrings.com, K-A-R-I-N, at sign, C-O-D-E-S-T-U-D-I-O-S-T-R-I-N-G-S, CodeStudioStrings.com. You can also hear folk music like this, along with pop and jazz and choral music and dance music every weekend in the Puget Sound area on the radio at 11.50 a.m. That's that's a.m. as in a.m. and f.m. Or you can go to the Scandinavian Hour, all one word, dot org, 
and hear these broadcasts. They're uh, 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock a.m. Pacific on Saturdays and 6 o'clock Pacific on Sundays. Seth Tufteland is the main host. Well worth your time. So that wraps up this podcast. The intro music is The New March by Morton Alfred Hoyrup and Ruthie Dornfeld, who have websites. Just Google them. Our outgoing music is composed and performed by Daryl Jackson. Catch our podcast with him, including photographs, a video, and links at the show's website page at nordicontap.com. We have now passed the 3,000 downloads mark. Thanks to you. Please email your thoughts at nordicontap at gmail.com. And so, I'm your host, Eric Stavney. Until next time, till next time, Viseas will be seeing you. Thank you.